Welcome to the Iron Butterfly Podcast, co-produced by the National Security Institute and the Amazing Women of the IC, better known as AWIC. My name is Megan Jaffer, and I will be your host. 80 years ago, Eloise Page joined the Office of Strategic Services, or the OSS, a predecessor for what we recognize today as the United States intelligence community. Page started as a secretary, but worked her way to becoming a case officer, and later she became the first female chief of station at CIA. Along the way, she earned the nickname Iron Butterfly, known for being a fierce fighter with a core of steel. The Iron Butterfly podcast aims to continue her legacy, inviting the U.S. intelligence community's unsung heroines to share their stories with aspiring IC leaders. This episode, we are joined by Carmen Medina, a retired senior federal executive with 32 years experience in the intelligence community, a former CIA deputy director of intelligence and NSI advisory board member. She is a recognized national and international expert on intelligence analysis, strategic thinking, diversity of thought, and innovation in the public sector. Carmen, thank you for joining us today. Hey, thanks, Megan. I hope you're doing well during the special period we're in. We're doing the best that we can. Same here. Well, good. It's really great to talk with you. Thanks for being here. So to set the scene, let's go back to the beginning of your career. Tell us a bit about how you got into the IC. When did you know it was what you wanted to do? And where did you land in the agency once you arrived? Way back machine here. So, you know, I don't think, in fact, I know that I never had working in the intelligence community as a goal. So I think like a lot of people, I ended up there as I decided other things were not what I wanted to do. The first thing that contributed to me working for the IC is that I ended up on the East Coast. I was living in El Paso, Texas. And to make a very long shaggy dog story short, I got offered a full tuition debate scholarship at Catholic University here in the district. And I accepted it. I was a junior transfer. And that's how I ended up in Washington. Otherwise, I'm sure I would never have been part of the intelligence community. Catholic University has a law school. And at that time, I was a college debater and I thought I was going to be a lawyer. But by being a Catholic, I got to meet law school students. And I decided I didn't like them and didn't want to end up being a lawyer and having that sort of personality. And I know this is very unfair to lawyers. And I've met a few that I've been able to tolerate since then. So anyway, once I decided I wasn't going to be a lawyer, then I had to figure out, well, what the heck did I want to be? And the only thing that I was really interested in was the entire world, which is a weird thing to say. But the whole global mess was what fascinated me. And I ended up going to Georgetown in the uh, Masters of Foreign Service. And the CIA recruiter comes to that campus, I think, every fall, at least then. And I signed up for an interview and they hired me. And I ended up, my first job was in the CIA Operations Center, the 24 by 7 watch office, right? And my first desk you know, account was Africa and the Middle East, which particularly the Middle East back in the late 70s was really hot. And back then, this was before computers. So if you think about it, how did the information get into the building? Well, it kind of came on these big ticker type machines, like butcher block paper, and someone had to tear off the cables and actually read them 
to see if anything important was going on in the world. This was before cable news. So my job was to read all this stream of information and figure out if any of the analysts had to be called because something, you know, there was a coup in Algeria or some African leader had been assassinated. And that's how I started out. It was a great job. On Saturday nights, like at midnight, the people in the operations center were really the only CIA people on duty at the time. So there I was with about nine months experience having like weird things happen and somehow being responsible for making a sound decision. I remember at the time thinking this is really weird. But anyway, that's how I ended up. And because I had been working the Africa desk, the people who were doing Africa analysis came calling and, you know, said, hey, we'd like to hire you. I was an easy hire. I was already cleared. And that's my story. So a lot of senior members of the intelligence community or retired members of the intelligence community say that their first job or their first couple jobs were their favorite jobs throughout their career. What would you say was your kind of favorite job? Well, that's a really interesting point. I mean, I loved being in the ops center. They don't do it anymore. But back then you were hired directly into working in the ops center. And I enjoyed it. You know, it was fast paced. We had to work these graveyard shifts Friday and Saturday nights, but they were kind of fun and everybody brought in something to eat. And there was a lot of camaraderie and banter. I still have friends to this day from that period. And the other great thing about working at the Ops Center is you didn't bring your work home. We can't bring our work home anyway, but it didn't prey on your mind. You know, you weren't, you know, worrying about a paper you hadn't completed or something like that. So I really enjoyed it. But unfortunately, it's kind of a dead end job. It doesn't really get to the heart of sophisticated analysis and all that stuff. But I love the Op Center. A second one I loved was working overseas and being a liaison officer to an important uh, ally. And I don't think I can mention exactly who that ally is, but that was something I really enjoyed. And I enjoyed being an executive leader. I realized that Whatever strengths I have were taken advantage of in that job. Like I'm a strategic thinker, and I think that's what you need in more senior positions. And so I think that was that was a plus. Well, it sounds like you enjoyed your career in general from the beginning to end. I mean, that's what you want, right? That's the dream for everyone. Certainly, probably more than being a lawyer. So um, as you know, this podcast is named after one of the first women to rise to a leadership role in the intelligence community. In your experience as a woman rising through the ranks at CIA, did you ever encounter challenges specifically with sexism, racism, or discrimination? Well, the short answer is yes. The longer answer, I think, starts with admitting that, at least for the United States, the concept of national security has been historically, accidentally infused with a lot of racist ideas. So, for example, a lot of our enemies in the national security global sense have been of a different ethnic group. So we fought the Vietnamese or China and even the the Soviet Union, they were Slavs. And so there was a tendency, and I'm using a very generic definition of racism, but there was a tendency to think about our opponents as the others. You know, they were somehow different from us. And Discrimination begins when you compartmentalize people like that and assign some other group of people this 
different status. And I found, particularly when I started in the late 70s, early 80s, that there was still a lot of that, not exactly sure how to describe this, but kind of implicit racial thinking about national security that was problematic. And the way it showed up in the workplace, and I'm embarrassed to admit this because I did it, you know, there was a lot of ethnic jokes made at CIA. You know, people would talk about the ragheads, the Arabs. I remember there was one senior leader who at every meeting would make some disparaging comment about another ethnic group, not a senior senior leader, but someone who was definitely above me and would say things like, well, you know, I don't know what we can expect of X government because they've never done anything competent since the colonial period ended. Well, that's a really problematic statement when you think about it, but it was very common to hear that kind of statement. And did you know then, because at that time, like you said, it was almost commonplace for them right, to be yeah. saying it. Did you feel uncomfortable at that time? Yes. or So I, I don't think I felt uncomfortable in the 80s. I must have heard phrases like that because I worked the Middle East and I would have been in a position to hear those phrases. And I worked South Africa, which was, you know, essentially a racial issue, right? I'm sure I heard it in the 80s but it didn't really penetrate. But I remember by the 1990s going, wait a minute, this is really wrong. And then definitely after September 11th, when that kind of anti-Arab talk was very common, Mm -hmm. even as we were hiring people who were Arab speakers or South Asians so that they had a Middle Eastern background. And I would hear that comment about the ragheads and I would just go, oh my God, someone's got to tell this individual to stop using that language because he's going to offend people. Did I approach that individual and say that? No, I did not gather up enough courage. But I remember talking to someone who knew us both, who I could trust and having that conversation with, you know, has anybody ever talked to him about the language he uses in meetings and how it might not be appropriate any longer? So no, I, I it wasn't until I was in my 40s, probably, that the significance and the problem with that kind of language really penetrated. You know, in terms of my own personal experience, when I worked on South Africa, I became persuaded that apartheid was going to end sooner rather than later. And that was a minority view in my group. And eventually a colleague converted or he changed his mind and also decided that that was going to happen, but he had to defend his ego. And I remember him writing a memo for the record to a very senior person who ended up Secretary of Defense. So that gives you a clue as to who this person was, who was at the time at CIA. And and the memo discussed why he had not appreciated the change that was occurring in South Africa the way I had. And he actually wrote in the memo, maybe it's because I'm not Puerto Rican. When I read the memo, I was like stunned, you know, because my own self-perception. I mean, I don't go around 24-7 thinking, yeah, I'm Puerto Rican, you know? That's not really, at least then, I think it is more now, but at least then it was not part of my professional identity. But clearly this was something that was in his mind, or otherwise he wouldn't have said that. So that's just an example of not really discrimination, but this kind of subtle, I don't even know what to call it, subtle differentiation 
that's going on if you're a minority, female, if you're physically handicapped, it could be, you know, any range of issues that make you different. You're not aware of how people see first your difference and don't really see you the way they should. How would you say those experiences help mold your leadership style and how you approached leading teams as you rose, you know, through the ranks? Well, I'm not really sure how I came to my leadership style, but my leadership style has always been very open. You know, my leadership style is non-leadership-ish. I don't particularly like telling people what to do. And I certainly feel that particularly among knowledge workers, the best environment is one where people feel very free to say whatever they're thinking. I remember the first time I was in a leadership position, trying to act like a leader, you know, commanding and authoritative, and being so unhappy behaving that way for about two weeks that I actually had a conversation with myself and I said, I don't like being that kind of person. So I'm just going to be myself as a leader. And if that doesn't suffice, so be it. But I'm not going to try to pretend to act the way leaders are supposed to act. So I always tried to run any activity that I had some authority over in as collegial a fashion as I could. I remember I was the chief of the South Africa branch in the late 1980s, and we ended up hiring a young African-American man who started working on South Africa, who was the first Black person to work on the account. And that was a fantastic experience because he really challenged how we thought about South Africa. And I remember lots of conversations with him about how your own ethnic background would affect how you saw this issue. And I guess the good thing, uh, how it reflects on my leadership style, is he felt safe to say whatever it was that he wanted to say in our team meetings. So I definitely think as a leadership philosophy that people rise to your expectations of them. And I very much expect the best out of every individual that's ever worked for me. And I think in almost every case, I think they have felt motivated, incentivized, whatever you want to say, encouraged to do their best. And I, th- and I think that's really the essence of my leadership philosophy. That and when people ask me that word, that uh, question, what's your leadership philosophy? I always have a one word answer, communication. There's not an issue in organizations that can't be improved with better communication. You said one word and you said communication. And I was thinking fairness, because you once told me a story about how you tried to lead by being fair and giving everyone an equal opportunity. Could you tell us an example of that? Well, I mean, I don't know if you're thinking of this, but here's an example. You know, we were working on South Africa and in the intelligence community, you know, usually you're working on a research project that's going to take week or months. Then you also have to do the daily work. It might be somebody has to be briefed. It might be you have to do a piece of analysis for the PDB, you know. So we had to have a way where people were free to do their long-term research. And yet we also had to take care of what we call the current responsibilities. And I also thought it was a good principle for everyone who worked on South Africa to be familiar with as many aspects of the problem as possible. And so the way I approach this is that every two weeks, some analyst, some member of the group was responsible for the current responsibilities. And it came the time that the young African-American man 
was doing current. And during his two week period, a very important briefing came up, I don't know, for an outgoing ambassador or something. And so it was his job to do it. And my managers, when they found out I was letting this individual do it, said to me, well, Carmen, you know, he's new, he shouldn't do it. And I said, well, it's it's my system and it's his turn, you know, to do this. So we're that's what we're going to do. And I guess they had enough credibility where, where they accepted that. Now, what's so interesting about that story, and I didn't realize this until about a year ago, is this individual still works at the organization. And he tells that story from his perspective, that what an impact it made to him that his first team chief backed him up and made sure that he was able to do this very important briefing. So, I mean, that was, a, that was just a great moment of affirmation for me to realize that that, you know, that that experience helped mold him as a leader. Absolutely. I think that, you know, you don't often think about some of those simple things that you right. have to place. And then, yeah. you know, he comes to you years later and yeah. telling you, you know, you changed the way I would lead yes. or the way I felt about right. um, myself. So yeah. that's, that's a great story. So you've spent much of your post-government career writing and speaking about organizational change, and you often refer to yourself as a rebel at work and an intrapreneur. Can you tell us how you apply your rebel leadership to diversity, equity, and inclusion challenges? I use the word rebel, rebel at work, and, and I think a lot of people think that that's in some ways confrontational or that I'm angry, you know. <laughs> attacking the ramparts. But the way I think about being a rebel at work is to be very clever and sort of have ninja moves about achieving whatever your goals are, you know, kind of do it subtle, you know, you know, these are not the droids you're looking for that that kind of approach. And I think that when you're looking at diversity and and equity issues and inclusion, um, it's often works better if you can nudge a conversation so that people realize for themselves what they could do better, what they could do different, and rather than you be directive about it. Nope. You know, one of my key principles in life is that nobody likes to feel embarrassed. Nobody. And you should always try to avoid that situation where you've potentially embarrassed the other person, let alone humiliate them. If you look at the background of the 9-11 perpetrators, a lot of them, when you read about them, felt humiliated as men. You know, they moved to Germany or whatever, and they realized they weren't respected or whatever. Mm -hmm. I think it's a very dangerous emotion to evoke in people. So it's, it's much better for people to have their own personal experience of, oh, okay, I can see that differently. So that's you know, how I think about being a rebel at work is it's much better to approach a situation with a little bit of nuance. And so I think that, you know, a lot of diversity and inclusion issues can be approached that way. I recognize, however, that many societies have been trying to fix diversity and inclusion issues for many decades in a nice way, and yet the problem persists. So, I mean, I will accept the criticism and certainly accept the point that, you know, how much longer 
are we going to have to deal with these issues? Isn't there a way that we can challenge more directly? You know, I, I understand that feeling, that emotion. So we talk a lot about diversity, equity, and inclusion in the IC. Can you help us understand why it's more than just checking a box and why it actually matters to all of us? The use of the word inclusion says it all. I hate that word. I know that we can't think of a better word, but I hate it because once you use inclusion, you're insinuating that I don't normally belong, that I don't naturally belong. Why do I have to be included? Didn't I belong from the get-go, right? And the reason why we need to have diversity and equity and why we need to deploy diversity of thought in the intelligence community is that the problems we're facing are just too hard. And the traditional, I think, kind of lazy ways of thinking about them are just not productive anymore. And so we have to harvest all the ideas that are available in our community, not just a few of them. And clearly, the experience of the last six months with the pandemic shows you the importance of diversity of thought. You know, some of the countries that have handled it really well, New Zealand or Greece, or I think until recently Vietnam, they had sort of a different cultural mindset that allowed them to do that. And I think that that kind of diversity of thought is useful in every kind of problem, particularly the problems having to do with how societies in the world get along or don't. Many of our listeners struggle to find their voice in the professional setting or the professional world. Can you give the women who struggle to be heard some advice on how they can kind of find their voice? Yeah, well, it depends upon where you are, right? So I speak a lot about being a rebel at work. And people come up to me and they they say, I can tell people don't listen to me at meetings anymore. Every time I open my mouth, even though my ideas are good, I can see them rolling their eyes. What should I do? In that circumstance, in that scenario, I tell them to shut up. I tell them to be quiet. By always talking, they've inoculated their audience so that they don't even hear their ideas anymore. So I say, spend some time the next few meetings and don't say anything. Just listen. And then maybe the third or fourth meeting, say something, but limit yourself to this is the one most important point that I'm going to make and make that one. And over time, you'll change people's views of what you have to say. Because when people are listening to you, talking more is not the answer, right? It's just uh, validating why they don't listen to you. The other scenario, the other extreme is the person that doesn't speak up. And there's lots of reasons why they don't speak up. Maybe they're naturally introverted. They perhaps they feel intimidated. And I would say the same thing. But, you know, coming at it from the other direction, I would say you don't, you shouldn't feel like you have to talk at every meeting. But what you should do is say to yourself, I'm going to make one important point at this meeting and I'm going to save myself for that point and I'm going to make it. And the another thing that people that are introverted or reluctant to talk in those situations can do is, you know, there's a meetings are kind of phony and fake. And often the most interesting stuff that's going on is the after meeting, mm-hmm. you know, as the meeting breaks up and you have these little conversations Right. and I think that's an important place for you to begin to 
uh, express your ideas. I think when you when you finding your voice, it just has to be your authentic voice. You know, I told that story when I became a manager and I realized I couldn't fake it. I just had to be myself. I received considerable criticism in my career that I'm not I don't project enough gravitas, that I'm not hard enough. Uh, yada, yada, yada. And I accept it, but I know in my heart of hearts, in my brain of brains, that I'm more effective as the best version of myself than I am as kind of a half-baked version of somebody else. And, you know, that's the advantage of, of many years, many decades. You, you learn to be at peace with that. That is actually a perfect place for us to end today. Carmen, thank you so much for sharing your time and your stories with us today. You have had an incredible life and career in the IC, and you continue to be an example to all of us on how to be a rebel leader, both um, inside and outside of the IC. Well, thanks, Megan. It was great to talk to you as always, and stay safe and everybody else out there. This has been an episode of Iron Butterfly, co-produced by the amazing women of the IC and the National Security Institute at George Mason Scalia Law School. To find out more about AWIC, email awicpodcast at gmail.com and tell us a bit about you. You can also learn more about NSI and their upcoming events by visiting their website, nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you like our show, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Lastly, we'd like to thank Grant Haver for his production assistance. Stay fierce, and we'll talk next time.